welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Hepatorenal syndrome, or HRS, remains a common cause of acute kidney injury in patients with cirrhosis, and it is associated with high morbidity and mortality. Recently, the FDA approved terlipressin for improvement of kidney function in adults with HRS, yet controversy exists regarding terlipressin's true benefit to safety profile. Here to discuss this topic are Drs. Nikita Yagnala and Andy Jadis, who will review recent advances in our understanding of HRS and compare the efficacy, safety, and utility of terlopressin and HRS to current standards of care. For years, terlopressin has been available across the world for the management of renal syndrome. It's also regarded as a first-line treatment option amongst numerous guidelines. As of September of this past year, terlopressin did receive FDA approval for the management of renal syndrome. But why did it take over nearly 20 years from time of orphan drug designation to actually reach the market. And more importantly, now that we do have this agent available, should we be feeling comfortable using it in our practice? Uh, thank you for joining us too. And Nikita and I are looking forward to take you on this journey uh, for Turlopressin to getting FDA approval. And then also we'll be having a nice fun pro-con debate here. I'll be focusing on the pros for Turlopressin and Nikita some of the cons. Learning objectives for today's session. Hope that you'll have an appreciation and be able to describe the pathophysiology of hepatorenal syndrome. Afterwards, also being able to discuss some of the pros and cons when looking at efficacy and safety when comparing terlopressin to other therapies. And then lastly, being able to define an optimal treatment therapy plan for these patients. Starting off first with some of the basic epidemiology of cirrhosis. For patients that are uh, in the inpatient setting, the prevalence of AKI is quite common looking at a range of 27 to 53%. This is important as we look at the 30-day mortality for these patients that do have AKI is up to 44%. So a pretty poor prognosis at baseline. And looking at the etiologies, there's a couple main categories that fall uh, that AKI can fall into, the most common being hypovolemia. But then also HRS AKI and acute tubular necrosis make up another important component. When looking at the historical definition of renal syndrome, it's been defined as HRS type 1 and type 2, with type 1 mainly being acute dysfunction and type 2 more chronic. The remainder of today's presentation will focus on more acute dysfunction. So what is the historical definition of uh, HRS type 1? It used more of a static marker of serum creatinine and injury, looking at a two times rise in baseline serum creatinine greater than 2.5 milligrams per deciliter within a two-week time frame. Also, patients have to have cirrhosis with ascites. Afterwards, looking at that, it's largely a diagnosis of exclusion. So these patients are truly to have it, are supposed to have an absence of shock, not be receiving any nephrotoxic drugs, have signs of structural kidney injury, and to help rule out hypovolemia, which I mentioned is the most common etiology, these patients undergo a, an aggressive or, uh, albumin challenge in which they receive one gram per kilogram of albumin for two days prior to officially having that diagnosis. HRS type 1 is our historical definition that we do see across a lot of our trials that we'll be discussing today. But in 2015, this definition was updated to more of a dynamic marker and change in serum creatinine that 
puts an emphasis on earlier recognition. So with this, the increase in serine creatinine greater than 0.3 milligrams per deciliter within a 48-hour window, or a somewhat uh, lower uh, cutoff here of 1.5 times baseline. This is important because it puts an emphasis on earlier recognition and treatment for these patients, given that we know that they have such poor prognosis. Looking at our pathophysiology of our disease state, it starts first with our liver. In our patients with cirrhosis, they have damage and functional changes in their interparenchymal cells that cause an increase in portal pressure. Additionally, there's increase in other inflammatory mediators, such as nitric oxide and translocation of bacteria from the gut. This all contributes to an inflammatory milieu, which leads to splenic vasodilation and a reduction in our effective arterial blood flow and systemic vascular resistance. Our body attempts to compensate and increase our neurohormonal response to help increase cardiac output and our systemic vascular resistance. Conversely, though, this increased renal vasoconstriction actually causes a paradoxical reduction in our renal blood flow. And at some point when our patients are no longer able to compensate and say, for example, they have a bacterial infection, their cardiac output is no longer able to support this, they're at a high risk of developing an HRS AKI. So where do our drug therapies fall into this? And looking specifically then in relation to our pathophysiology, where they help to work. Albumin is going to be our primary therapy again. It's going to be helpful to help rule out the hypovolemic causes. And being a colloid fluid of choice, it helps increase our effective arterial blood uh, volume. It's going to be used in combination uh, with our therapies, which consist of our other vasopressor or vasoconstrictor options. A common therapy that we use here in the United States is combination of minadrin and octreotide, with minadrin being an oral alpha-1 agonist. It works primarily to increase our systemic vascular resistance and MAP through that mechanism, whereas octreotide is a non-selective somatostatin analog that helps reduce splenic vasodilation. When looking at a more potent vasoconstrictor option, norepinephrine is our agent of choice for HRS, and similar to minadrin, it works on alpha-1 to help increase our systemic vascular resistance, but does have some weaker beta-1 agonist activities that can help improve cardiac output. And then lastly, terlopressin. This is a vasopressin-1 select, vasopressin selective agonist that helps increase systemic vascular resistance, but does have some unique mechanisms in helping to reduce portal pressure, then also translocation of bacteria in the gut. So it's thought to help some of that inflammatory milieu that can also occur in these patients, and it's key to pathophysiology. That brings us to our first assessment question for today. Since to, uh, poll everywhere isn't available, I'll just ask the audience if you want to raise your hand as a, uh, I can read through them and then you can raise your hand on what you think, uh, or feel free to type your answer in the, into the chat. Which of the following is a contributor to the development of hepatorenal syndrome? Is it A, increased splenic vasodilation, B, increased arterial blood flow, C, decreased neurohormonal response, or D, decreased translocation of gut bacteria? All right, I'll take a poll for A. All right, how about B, C, or D? I looked like most people were correct. It's A, increased splenic vasodilation is one of the key hallmarks of this disease state in which we use our therapies to target. Now that we've reviewed some of the background of our pathophysiology and agents that we use, how do we help determine our optimal agent? Our discussion for the remainder today will focus on these three main categories, looking at efficacy, safety, and cost. First, starting off with efficacy, I'd like to talk about our largest randomized controlled trial to date on this topic, comparing terlopressin versus placebo in the CONFIRM trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2021. In this randomized controlled trial, they looked at patients with HRS type 1, defined as a serum creatinine of two times baseline, or 
a rise greater than 2.25 milligrams per deciliter. In the patients that received terlopressin, they started at one milligram every six hours and can receive up to a max at day four if they weren't responding of two milligrams every six hours, up to a total of 14 days. Some exclusion criteria to note, large volume paracentesis within two days and patients with high serum creatinine or need for renal replacement at baseline were excluded as previous trials had shown that these groups are unlikely to respond to terlopressin. Additionally, patients with sepsis or uncontrolled infection, which was defined as not being started on antimicrobial therapy, were also excluded. Looking at baseline characteristics, a large majority of the cause of cirrhosis in these patients were related to alcohol use, whereas looking at their baseline map of 78, it's important to note that these patients were not in any kind of shock state. Looking at their MELD score of 33, this would correlate with a three-month mortality of 50%, so a pretty poor prognosis at baseline. Moving on then to our outcomes from this trial, looking at their primary outcome of confirmed hepatal renal syndrome reversal, this was defined as a serum creatinine less than 1.5 milligrams per deciliter with two separate measurements at least two hours apart, and additionally survival without need for renal replacement for an additional 10 days after uh, last day of therapy. And these patients that received terlopressin had a higher rate of reversal. And also another important uh, orient patient-oriented outcome that worth mentioning is that there was also an increase in the number of patients that did not need renal replacement therapy at day 30. When, when looking at mortality at day 90, there was no difference between these two options, the two therapies. Uh, but I think it's worth mentioning that do we really expect terlopressin to have an impact on three-month mortality in these patients that have such poor prognosis, since we're not truly fixing their underlying pathophysiology, more so just tampering, uh, putting a Band-Aid and kind of fixing it from a momentarily standpoint. So, of course, we know liver transplant would truly be the only effective therapy for these patients. And looking at post hoc analysis for patients uh, that were potentially listed for transplant, we saw a higher rate of reversal uh, with terlopressin. Then also for those that did go on to get a transplant, there was a or an increased incidence of renal replacement therapy in the placebo group. So suggesting that terlopressin might have some benefits for those patients that do go on to get a transplant. And if that's not enough data to convince you that terlopressin should be our go-to agent, looking at a pooled analysis of the three main randomized controlled trials across North America, what could see here is across some various subgroups that terlopressin was superior to placebo. One I want to specifically call out is patients with systemic inflammatory response syndrome, in which we could see a shift even further in their odds ratio towards benefit with terlopressin. Again, this is thought to be related to its unique mechanism of action, helping to decrease some of that inflammatory milieu that can occur. But overall, I'd like to conclude that terlopressin is superior to placebo for the reversal of HRS. So of course we know that in practice, we don't give our patients placebo. So how does terlopressin compare against some of our other standards of therapy that we currently use? Starting first off with a study here by Koblin and colleagues in 2015, this looked at patients with uh, in a randomized controlled trial of adults with HRS type 1 and 2, but I would note the number of patients with type 2 was quite minimal and didn't make up a majority of the study population. They compared a terlopressin continuous infusion, noting the slightly different dosing uh, route, uh, versus minadrin and octreotide in the study. And what we saw was that patients that had hepatal renal syndrome reversal, which was defined as having a serum creatinine less than 1.5, was increased in the patients that received terlopressin although this did not have an impact on mortality at day 90. This would lead me to conclude that terlopressin is better than our current standard of therapy that we had previously been using here in the United States. So looking at a more potent vasoconstrictor option, of course, you'll hear from Nikita that uh, norepinephrine might be a, a fine and valuable option, but looking at our updated definition of 
uh, HRS AKI, which had that less stringent cutoff of serum creatinine, a continuous infusion of terlopressin was compared to norepinephrine. And what we found is that HRS reversal, which was defined as a serum creatinine within of 0.3 milligrams per deciliter of, of baseline, was increased with the terlopressin group, whereas the mortality at day 28 was also improved in the patients that received terlopressin. I do think that this is hypothesis generating, although noting the small sample size, uh, we'd likely need additional trials to confirm uh, if terlopressin truly is superior to norepinephrine using this newer, lower serum creatinine cutoff. So moving on then to our major comparator option here that we might hear is a great and fine option. Well, what kind of data do we actually have available comparing norepinephrine to placebo in, in this patient population? All we see is there are no data for us to go back to and is a significant limitation when looking at norepinephrine. Now I'll turn things over to Nikita to focus on some of the con aspects of efficacy. Thank you, Andy, for sharing some of the more glamorous data for terlopressin, to say the least. Let's remember that terlopressin had a pretty turbulent journey to FDA approval, and there were two large United States randomized controlled trials before the confirmed study that did not meet their primary outcome, for good reason. I think it's important to take a step back and learn more about these two studies and understand why didn't they didn't meet their primary outcome, as this was one of the main reasons why the FDA took so long to actually prove terlopressin in the United States. Both the OT401 and reverse study looked at similar patient populations to the confirmed trial. But I, what I really want you to focus your attention on is what they defined as the primary efficacy outcome for these two studies. The OT401 study defined treatment success at day 14 as two serum creatinine values less than 1.5, 48 hours apart, without the need for renal replacement therapy, death, or the recurrence of hepatorenal syndrome. When the study did not meet its primary efficacy endpoint, the FDA denied the approval of terlopressin and requested a subsequent trial with a different primary efficacy endpoint, perhaps a little less stringent. The reversed trial from 2016 took another approach, defining their primary efficacy endpoint as two serum creatinine values less than 1.5, 40 hours apart, without renal replacement therapy or death at day 14, but did not include the loss of the lack of hepatorenal syndrome recurrence as part of its composite outcome. This trial, once again, did not meet its primary efficacy endpoint, and the FDA once again denied approval of terlopressin going again the path of requesting another randomized controlled trial, which we now know as our confirmed study. As Andy had mentioned, the primary efficacy endpoint of the confirmed study took an interesting approach to the biomarkers, looking at two serum creatinine values less than 1.5, only two hours apart. When we think about serum creatinine as a lab value, we all recognize that it kind of lags by at least 24 hours. So how do we make sense of the fact that in this efficacy endpoint, the biomarker itself is only looking at two creatinine values two hours apart? And can we truly say that that's reversal of hepatorenal syndrome? It's questionable to me. This lends us to the question of what clinically meaningful outcomes we actually want out of terlopressin. Andy does a thoughtful job of recognizing that there is no 90-day mortality with terlopressin, and we shouldn't necessarily expect that. The ultimate end-stage cirrhosis here is going to be liver transplantation. Terlopressin also will not be improving or reducing the recurrence of renal syndrome. And so what Andy had said is that terlopressin is simply a Band-Aid in that index hospitalization where a patient has acute on chronic liver failure and has AKI. We're temporizing that AKI, potentially reducing the need for renal replacement therapy. So terlopressin is simply a Band-Aid, and that's the mindset that we need to have. So how is terlopressin all that superior or all that special compared to some of our active standards of care that we use in the United States so far? 
Andy mentions that norepinephrine has not been compared to placebo in randomized controlled trials. But I will note that in a lot of our updated guidelines for acute on chronic liver failure from 2022 and our AASLD guidelines from 2021, norepinephrine is considered first-line agent alongside terlipressin if terlipressin is not available. There are numerous randomized controlled trials of more moderate quality evidence that even compare norepinephrine infusion with MAP augmentation to terlipressin itself. What we find from these trials when defining hepatorenal syndrome as a creatinine less than 1.5 is that norepinephrine is fairly comparable to terlipressin in the reversal of hepatorenal syndrome when you augment the MAPs to greater than 10 millimeters per mercury from patient's baseline. To round out our understanding of where terlipressin stands compared to some of our other vasoactive treatments for hepatorenal syndrome, an updated 2022 network meta-analysis does a great job of really identifying where terlipressin is compared to what we do today. This meta-analysis pooled data from 26 randomized controlled trials, including the confirmed study, and looked at the absolute risk difference of, of hepatorenal syndrome reversal and mortality for terlipressin, norepinephrine, aminidrine, and octreotide compared to placebo. What we find is that both terlipressin and norepinephrine increase the HRS reversal, whereas mitidine and octreotide don't really have much data to support its true efficacy. From a mortality standpoint, I will cautiously admit that in this pooled analysis, there is a trend towards decreased mortality with terlipressin, but this is with a very low level of certainty, and we are aware that ultimate mortality benefit will come from liver transplantation. So aggregating our pros and cons and reconciling, I would say overall, from an efficacy standpoint, terlipressin does seem to be superior to placebo and superior to mitidrine and octreotide. It seems right now that norepinephrine is fairly comparable to terlipressin, with the caveat that in the United States, norepinephrine does need to be infused in the ICU setting, whereas terlipressin can be administered on the floor. So for this reason, I will cautiously admit that perhaps the efficacy tips the balance towards the pro section for terlipressin. All that being said, however, when we think about factors of an optimal agent, we need to think about both the safety, efficacy, and cost. So when we think about the safety of terlipressin, I will admit that I have some significant concerns that might potentially tip the balance in the opposite direction. Terlipressin has a lot of different safety concerns, including respiratory, ischemic, and gastrointestinal adverse events. Of the most concerning, however, are the respiratory adverse events, with about 14% of patients in the confirmed study who received terlipressin having serious respiratory failure. This led to the FDA putting a black box warning on terlipressin for concern of serious or fatal respiratory events. Diving more into respiratory failure, we recognize that terlipressin is given concomitantly alongside albumin, and many proponents of terlipressin make the argument that patients in the confirmed study got significantly higher doses of albumin, leading to potential volume overload, pulmonary edema, and respiratory failure. While I will say this is a notable um, thing to identify when we look across all the different United States trials, we do see that patients in the confirmed study got more albumin in total. But when you identify and compare patients in the placebo group compared to the terlipressin group, you will see that patients in placebo received about 600 grams of albumin, which is significantly more than any other arm of all the other studies. And yet, they only had 5% respiratory failure compared to all the other patient cohorts. This raises the question of whether there's something inherently worrisome with terlipressin itself. While albumin isn't innocent, I would say that there's something else going on. To further negate the concept that albumin is the sole culprit is as a post hoc analysis from the trial designer himself from the confirmed study, looking at the incidence of respiratory failure across various different quartiles of albumin administration of patients in the confirmed study. 
What you can clearly see is that despite receiving higher doses of albumin, there is no correlation with the incidence of respiratory failure. Once again, leading to my argument that albumin itself is not the only thing to blame, and excessive albumin administration is not the sole cause of the respiratory adverse events that we're seeing. To conceptualize the potential harms that terlipressin might have on the pulmonary vasculature, let's take a look at the mechanism of action of terlipressin and how it potentially compares to our standard of care, norepinephrine. Terlipressin is going to vasodilate the pulmonary arteries and vasoconstrict the pulmonary veins. By doing so, there will be increased blood flow into the pulmonary vasculature, but perhaps less blood flow out of the pulmonary vasculature, leading to pulmonary edema. Terlipressin also causes systemic vasoconstriction, increasing afterload, and perhaps in patients who can't compensate with their cardiac output, there might be a backflow of blood into the pulmonary vasculature, further exacerbating pulmonary edema. Norepinephrine, on the other hand, is a potent vasoconstrictor, vasoconstricting both the pulmonary arteries, pulmonary veins, and systemic vasculature. It also provides some weak positive inotropy, which allows for better forward flow and that less risk of pulmonary edema. All this goes to say that I think the combination of terlipressant with albumin really creates a perfect storm of hydrostatic pressure in the pulmonary vasculature, leading to pulmonary edema and leading to that increased risk of respiratory adverse events, which is of significant concern, in my opinion. I'll now have Andy talk about some of the potential mitigation strategies for this significant concern. I think Nikita definitely brings up some really important things that we do need to consider and unlock definitely on terlipressin from a safety standpoint. But when have we ever really considered norepinephrine the poster child for safety as far as administering it to patients? And that does give me a little bit of pause. And going back to, we do have this luxury of looking at terlipressin versus placebo from some of our trials, but where is our data for norepinephrine versus placebo? Not currently available. And of the studies Nikita mentioned for efficacy, we didn't see some of these same safety harms uh, when comparing terlipressin and norepinephrine, rather they come from just the placebo-based data. But given that these safety adverse effects are definitely things that we need to be uh, considering in our practice, I'm gonna walk through some steps I think that can be helpful to help mitigate these. One, starting with looking at patients with acute on chronic liver failure and the impact of that severity. Acute on chronic liver failure is defined as having one extra hepatic site of organ that is essentially failing. So a majority of our patients with HRS AKI will meet this criterion since they have kidney injury. But additionally, their grading can be scaled from one to three with one representing more mild and three, the more severe forms. And essentially, in practice, we could use a score called the CLIF-SOFA score to determine where someone would fall on that grading based off the number of organ systems that they have that are in failure. And looking at our results from the confirmed trial, on the, our x-axis here, we have patients with grade 1 and 2, more mild and moderate acute on chronic liver failure, and grade 3, more severe forms on our x-axis. On the y-axis here, we have our rates of renal failure reversal. And what we could see is that patients are more likely to benefit from having renal, reverse, uh, renal injury reversal in grades one and two, whereas grade three, there's unlikely to be a benefit. Combining this with addition to looking at the rates of death at day 30s from respiratory failure, what we could see is a disproportionate number of patients were, had severe or grade three uh, ACLF. So this really brings me to the conclusion that to maximize their efficacy and safety risk, we should largely be avoiding terlipressin in patients with grade three ACLF. But then also to take things a step further, the FDA had asked the drug manufacturer to come up with a, a list of potential mitigating strategies to help reduce that, these harms. So when looking at this, they had proposed excluding patients that have new onset dyspnea or tachypnea, 
respiratory disease, which they don't specifically outline what that would entail. So it does leave a little bit to the imagination if that would include things such as uncontrolled COPD or asthma, but then also uh, excluding patients that had signs of fluid overload that might have received a little too much albumin or weren't receiving judicious use of diuretic therapy, but then also untreated pneumonia. So this would be someone that hasn't been started on appropriate antimicrobial therapy. Also looking at hepatic encephalopathy grade three on the West Haven scale, these patients would be at higher risk for potential aspiration that could contribute to their respiratory decompensation. And lastly, serum creatinine greater than five was shown across different cohorts not to have potential benefit to gain from terlopressin. When they did a post hoc analysis of uh, the confirmed trial, what they saw when excluding these patients with these criterion is they were able to mitigate 64% of the serious adverse events that occurred. It is important to note the limitations of this. This was not in a peer-reviewed journal, rather just an FDA advisory brief provided at the time of approval. And looking at the number needed to harm then and the impact of this, what we see is it drastically increased from 13 to 64. And as a reminder, the number needed to treat from reversal from the confirmed trial was six. So I think this brings the important aspect that we need to be looking at careful patient selection to help mitigate our risk of serious adverse events when using terlopressin. Another way that we could help mitigate adverse events and something that needs an additional research is looking at the usage of continuous infusion terlopressin. One specific study worth mentioning is a comparison of two milligrams per day of terlopressin to 0.5 milligrams every four hour boluses. And what they showed in this study was that the mean daily effective dose for reversal was lower in patients that were receiving the continuous infusion um, therapy. Whereas hepatorenal syndrome reversal, which is defined as having a serum creatinine less than 1.5 milligrams per deciliter, was no difference between these two different uh, administration routes. And lastly, looking at severe treatment adverse events, this was significantly lower when using continuous infusions of terlopressin. I do want to note, though, that this does not mirror our current FDA-approved label dosing. And this is really just hypothesis generating and would require additional research before our accepted use in practice. But overall, continuous infusions of terlopressin might be promising to help decrease some of our adverse events. That brings us to our second assessment question for today. Based on the data presented, which of the following is incorrect regarding the efficacy and safety of terlopressin? Is it A, it shows a, a mortality benefit compared to placebo? B, is superior to minadrenic octreotide for reversal? C, may cause serious or fatal respiratory failure, or D, has similar efficacy to norepinephrine for reversal. And I'll uh, go for a show of hands for A. Okay, B, C, D. Okay, it was a very active vote here in the live audience, uh, but A would be the, uh, the incorrect answer given that it hasn't shown a clear mortality benefit compared to placebo. So going back then to our balance here and looking at the pros and cons of terlopressin, I will admit to Nikita's point that terlopressin definitely has a serious knock when it comes to a safety standpoint. And we need to be using this therapy appropriately to help ensure that we could decrease uh, the potential harms. It does carry that serious black box warning for fatal uh, respiratory uh, events and does require continuous oxygen saturation monitoring for its use. Additionally, the unique mechanism of action that it might have on increasing hydrostatic pressures could be why it's contributing to some of these re respiratory consequences. And lastly, as it noted, risk mitigation and careful patient selection will definitely be important in addition to assessment of fluid status to help prevent adverse uh, events. Going back then to our last portion of our discussion today, we'll be looking at the impact of cost. 
starting at a thousand foot overview, just looking at the impact of an ICU stay on our cost, what we see is that less than 10% of inpatient beds in the United States are actually in the ICU, but it, they account for a disproportionate amount of costs representing more than 33%. In general, an ICU stay is three to five times what it would cost to stay on the general floor, and a day in the ICU can range from $3,500 to $7,000 a day. From the confirmed trial, 85% of patients were managed on the floor, so this should give us some uh, confidence that we can effectively use this therapy outside of the ICU. But what about the patients that were managed in the ICU? What we see is that the ICU length of stay was reduced in those patients that received toralopressin compared to placebo. Do want to note the limitation that this is a very small uh, section of the, of the prior study, only being 15%. As Nikita mentioned, norepinephrine can be an option for a first-line therapy for HRS, but currently in the United States, it does require admission to an ICU with ICU level of monitoring to be used. So if you're admitting patients directly to an ICU to receive this therapy, based off the median duration of terlopressin from the confirmed trial of five days, this would potentially cost $17,500 to $35,000. So in summary, for costs, terlopressin may help us decrease our ICU length of stay and prevent unnecessary ICU admission that would come with norepinephrine. Now I'll turn things over to Nikita to talk about some of the cons for costs. All right, all right, Andy. So terlopressin might decrease ICU length of stay and prevent unnecessary ICU admission, but how much does this thing cost? Terlopressin is very expensive. The average wholesale cost of a vial of terlopressin that comes at 0.85 milligrams, fun pharmacy fact, that equals one milligram of terlopressin acetate salt form, is about $1,100. For a standard treatment course of a patient who gets one milligram of terlopressin every six hours for an average of five days, that's going to be upwards of $22,000. And this is the best case scenario. What if a patient doesn't have an adequate response in their serum creatinine to terlopressin? We might consider a day four dose increase. We increase the dose to two milligrams every six hours and test it for another five days, upwards of $59,000. If we were to max out the 14-day duration of terlopressin, a total treatment cost would be about $114,000, which is very expensive. Ultimately, I think when we're thinking about the pros and cons of terlopressin and from a cost standpoint, there's going to be some patients where the risk of terlopressin is greater than the benefit, and perhaps the cost is not worth it for these patients. And a handful of patients might have higher benefit risk assessment ratio for terlopressin, and perhaps in the, it's in these specific patient populations that we should be considering terlopressin in. I think as pharmacists, it's really going to be up to us to best identify and select the patients who will have the best benefit-to-risk ratio for terlopressin to ensure that we're maintaining cost-effectiveness. So who should we be considering terlopressin in? While Mayo Clinic PNT formulary will provide more formal guidance on restriction criteria for terlopressin in the coming weeks, the following few slides will provide some guidance as to how to identify and manage hepatorenal syndrome AKI in our patient populations with the availability of terlopressin coming soon. I think first and foremost, the most important thing is really to have a good understanding of which patients truly have hepatorenal syndrome AKI. As Andy has mentioned, the diagnosis has changed, and some of the key factors I really want to point out to you are recognizing that first and foremost, we should be conducting a diuretic withdrawal and fluid challenge to ensure that patients are not hypovolemic. For true by-the-book definition of hepatorenal syndrome, AKI, there technically needs to be an absence of shock, and it is a diagnosis of exclusion. So we do need to ensure that no nephrotoxic drugs are on board and that there are no signs of structural kidney injury before confirming the diagnosis. It's in these specific patients who have true hepatorenal syndrome, AKI, that will have the best benefit with vasoconstrictor and albumin treatment. 
So when it comes to selecting the optimal vasoconstrictor of choice, here are a couple of things to keep in mind and the guidance that we have for you. The first decision point is to really determine if the patient's on the floor or in the ICU. I would make the argument that if a patient is in the ICU and they have no hypotension or new onset shock, perhaps MAP augmentation with norepinephrine is really going to be the best option. Augmenting the MAP to a MAP greater than 10 millimeters per mercury was really going to be key. If a patient is on the floor and terlipressin is available for use, this is where an appropriate risk-benefit assessment should be conducted. When thinking about which patients to use terlipressin in and which patients will have the best benefit to risk ratio, a lot of these points are going to be based on the safety and efficacy data that Andy and I had described. Patients who have a serum creatinine greater than five or an ACLF grade of three are likely going to have more harm than benefit with terlipressin, and these patients should be avoided. I would make the argument that patients who are setting at pulse ox of 90% or greater are on room air are really the only types of patients we should be considering terlipressin in, just given its significant respiratory concerns. Patients who have an active infection and are not yet treated with antibiotics should be treated with antibiotics for at least 48 hours before we consider terlipressin. Patients who have hepatic encephalopathy with a West Haven grading score of greater than or equal to three should also be avoided. Terlipressin should also be avoided in these patients as they have a higher risk of aspiration pneumonia. Given terlipressin's known ischemic concerns, patients who have a history of coronary artery disease, vascular disease, and congestive heart failure should also not be initiated on terlipressin. There are a variety of patient populations where the terlipressin data has not really been fully elucidated yet in confirming or denying the risk-benefit ratio. These types of patient populations include those on the liver transplant list with a high MELD score of greater than 35, those who are pregnant, those who remain in the ICU, and patients who have recurrence of hepatorenal syndrome, AKI. Once we identify that a patient's benefit outweighs the risk for perhaps trialing terlipressin, I would say it's an option that we should go for, potentially to reduce the need for renal replacement therapy and temporize their AKI. If terlipressin is not available or the risks seem to outweigh the benefits after a discussion with the team, the potential next-line option would be octreotide and minadrin, recognizing that it is a last-line option and it is inferior to terlipressin and norepinephrine. If terlipressin was chosen, these are some of the dosing and monitoring guidelines to keep in mind from the package insert. On day one, you'll record the patient's baseline serum creatinine and start terlipressin at one milligrams every six hours. At day four, you'll reassess the patient's serum creatinine levels and compare it to their baseline, really looking for a delta of about 30% from their baseline. If their serum creatinine has decreased by 30% or more from their baseline, we can say that perhaps terlipressin is working appropriately and will continue the dose as is. If the serum creatinine has decreased, but not to about 30% from baseline, you, we do have an option to increase that terlipressin dose to about two milligrams every six hours. Again, reinitiating that risk-benefit discussion of a dose increase. Finally, if the serum creatinine is at or above baseline, we can conclude that terlipressin is likely not effective and just discontinue it to avoid further safety concerns. From the package insert, terlipressin should be continued until 24 hours after achieving two consecutive serum creatinine levels less than 1.5, at least two hours apart. Though I would argue with the, with the new HRS AKI criteria, perhaps continuing terlipressin up until serum creatinine is within 0.3 of baseline is probably more best. Terlipressin can only be continued for a maximum of 14 days, but we may reinitiate therapy if patients have recurrence. From a monitoring standpoint, things to keep in mind from the package insert to be implemented is that continuous pulse oximetry monitoring will be required, and if patients have pulse ox less than 90% on room air, terlipressin should be paused and discontinued. 
volume status assessments will be vital to ensuring that we're not further exacerbating the pulmonary edema risk. With that, we'll move on to our final assessment question with a patient case. WP is a 62-year-old female with cirrhosis admitted to the internal medicine service for management of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis and is started on ceftriaxone two grams every 24 hours. Past medical history is significant for COPD, coronary artery disease with a recent NSTEMI, and type 2 diabetes. Baseline serum creatinine is 1.2. Throughout her hospital course, WP develops a significant AKI with serum creatinine peaking at 3.6 by hospital day 5. GI, hepatology, and nephrology are consulted and confirm a diagnosis of hepatorenal syndrome, AKI. You as the pharmacist are working the patient up, um, up in the morning during rounds and know that the team's going to ask you about terlipressin. What factors would weigh into your decision to recommend for or against the use of terlipressin to treat WP's HRS, AKI? We can have people type in the Zoom chat box or shout it out in the audience. History of NSTEMI. I agree. Avoid terlipressin due to ACS, COPD. I think these are concerns that we need to bring into account. Active infection, also agree. Other things that we can think about, patient serum creatinine is less than five, so that's kind of a reason potentially that we can use it in this patient. I didn't give information about her altered mental status or if she has any altered mental status from a hepatic encephalopathy standpoint. We would assume the patient's not intubated because she's on the floor. So all these items should be kept in mind when we think about the risk-benefit assessment and making this, having this discussion with our interdisciplinary team. Thank you for participating. So to summarize, hepatorenal syndrome, AKI, is a serious complication of cirrhosis associated with significant mortality, where really the end-stage cure for this will be liver transplantation. That being said, terlipressin is a new FDA-approved agent that has shown efficacy in the reversal of hepatorenal syndrome, AKI, compared to placebo. It's superior to midodrine and octreotide and likely comparable to norepinephrine, with the caveat that it can be used on the floor. That being said, terlipressin doesn't come without its risks. It has a significant safety concern with a black box warning for respiratory failure, and judicious volume assessment and mitigation strategies must be enacted to make sure that we're optimizing its safety. Overall, thoughtful use of terlipressin in select patients will be necessary to ensure that we're optimizing safety, cost, and its effectiveness. It's really just the beginning of the road for terlipressin in the United States, but it'll be interesting to see if and how various institutions implement it into their hospital and the data that comes along with it. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.